if you will, turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians, as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember that Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth, and, and he begins by dealing with the issue of the divisions that are going on in the church, that it's a very carnal, fleshly, immature church, that they are competing with one another as Christians, and, and the way that they're competing is by who they're attaching themselves to, which of the various different leaders. And, and so Paul has been in these last chapters really dealing with that issue talking about the fact that that Christ is the one that we are connected to and that we're not to find our identity by identifying with what leader or teacher or instructor that we are attached to, to that, uh, that we are not to exalt the, the instruments that God uses. And, and so he began to talk about the fact that we use our gifts, each of us has different gifts and and who gave us those gifts and God is the one that gave us those gifts and so if what we have been given then why are we prideful of what we've been given if it's been given to us and and so in heaven he's been making the point that only God is going to receive the glory he kind of talked about the way in a church that that everybody participates he says you know some sow and others water but it's God who gives the increase he says there's one foundation that foundation is jesus christ but different workmen will uh, will have a different part of of building you up and raising you up in in your faith and uh, and so here as he moves through he's been using some different metaphors and illustrations and you know last chapter he talked about stewards and servants that uh, that everybody is just a steward and a servant of the lord and that in that faithfulness is the key component the key ingredient in a steward is just that that capacity to serve faithfully before the lord you'll remember that in paul now kind of having to defend his apostolic authority a little bit last time you know uh, talked about the fact that 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 he is the one that had begotten them spiritually and and that you have many different instructors but there's only one spiritual father that that you have that kind of brings you to your your faith and so Paul talking about that position that he has in their life to now be able to, to speak into their lives on these uh, issues. Paul is now kind of after he has established his, you know, his paternal interest and his apostolic authority is going to shift on to the next issue that is going on in the church that he wants to address in this letter. And, and that is their confusion on the issue of tolerance. It's an issue that we've got today in our culture too, where in the church they were being very tolerant of a, of a very immoral situation. 
And they were then priding themselves uh, on that tolerance, believing that that's love. Look at how long-suffering we are. Look at how uh, welcoming we are. Look at how tolerant we are as a church. And so now they were taking that position. Well, that's the very issue that we've got going on in our culture today, where tolerance has been raised to a virtue, that tolerance equals love. And so if you're loving, then you should be accepting and tolerant of, uh, of every single different aspect and, and immorality that, that a person may be involved in. And, and that is where Christians today uh, are getting confused. And so I want you to know that confusion isn't new. This confusion went all the way back to the very early church. What do you do with the world? How do we love the world? What does loving the world mean? What does being in the world but not of the world mean? These are the gray areas that, uh, that, that we are getting confused in in our culture today. And so a timely chapter for us to examine, especially in light of the fact that last month was Gay Pride Month and we saw on the news the battlefronts, Target, and the, the issue of what they were doing with the transgender swimsuits that now they were promoting during gay pride and the the response of that and and so these issues here are are right in front of us and relevant so so what does being a mature godly believer look like in light of these issues and what is the the church's response how do we handle these situations and and circumstances and and so let's see how Paul addresses this issue there in the church of Corinth and then, and then let's apply it to what we're experiencing today in our culture as well. Verse 1, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So we see here that Paul starts off with this declaration that it is actually reported. In other words, it means this is common knowledge. It's not something that's, that's being done in secret or is being gossiped about or whispered or covered up. It, everybody knows that this is common knowledge here. He says that there is sexual immorality uh, among you. And so uh, we see here that the issue that was going on was that there was a, a Corinthian Christian who was carrying on an incestuous affair with his stepmother. So we see that probably the stepmother was not a believer because we see no address of her whatsoever, but we see that the Corinthian man that is involved in this relationship is who Paul focuses uh, on. And so uh, we see here that he says that this uh, sexual immorality that is going on, he, he says it's not even named among the Gentiles. Now, we see that in the Old Testament, uh, an incestuous relationship between a son and a stepmother, that this is uh, outlawed in Leviticus chapter 18, uh, verses 6 through 9, deal with this very specific issue. And so that's the, that's the law. But 
Paul doesn't even cite the law. He, he doesn't even say, you know, that, that, that in the Old Testament, this is how, he says, this is an offense even to the Gentiles. The, the, the Gentiles are, uh, are abhorred by this practice uh, here. And, and so, verse two, and, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from uh, among you. And so we see that Paul is saying that not only are you aware of this going on in the church, you haven't stopped it, number one. Number two, you are accepting of it. And number three, you think that's a good thing. You are seeing that as a sign of spiritual maturity, that somehow you have gotten to the place where you think that tolerance equals love. And so Paul says here that, you know, rather than being puffed up, that you should have been mourning over this, this attitude, this broad-minded attitude towards sin is hurting not only the individual who you are now enabling to continue in this, but you're also <coughs> harming the purity of the church as well. And so we see that there's a twofold concern that Paul has. Uh, here they are thinking that this very liberal attitude towards sin was something that was to be admired. But when we cease to take a, a serious view of sin, we put ourselves in a very perilous position. Sin is serious, and God is the one that takes a very serious attitude towards sin. The godly response would have been grief for this brother who was caught up in this lifestyle sin, and it would have led to a discipline now. But rather, we see that, uh, that there is this, this tolerance, and then the tolerance is seen as the virtue. Today among the youth especially, there is great confusion on this whole issue of, uh, of tolerance. And, and the way that the youth are confused on this, the, the, the line of logic of thinking, is, is that they are told that as Christians, we are not to judge that Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And so when we're judging the lifestyle of somebody else, we are not carrying out uh, our faith, which is called to love them and not to judge them. And so this is now in harmony with uh, what the schools are teaching, what the culture is inculcating into them, that uh, we are not to uh, judge uh, one another and that we are to be accepting of whatever lifestyle, whatever sin a person wants to uh, enter in, and we are not even to call it sin or to make them feel bad about anything. We're to give them complete freedom to live exactly as they want, that that is their right. Uh, as an American, we see that suddenly now sin is becoming a, 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 a civic privilege uh, in our culture uh, today. The pursuit of happiness somehow now means to pursue anything whatsoever, regardless of the morality of it. And so we see that we are in this downward spiral culturally. So let's kind of pull that back a little bit and see if we can untangle that and make sure that our thinking is biblical.
cyclical and that our thinking is clear on this. Part of the confusion on this issue comes from the very word judge in the original language. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says, do not judge lest you be judged, the word judge in the original language has two different meanings. Number one, the meaning is condemn. Second, the second meaning of the word is to evaluate to evaluate something. And so when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he is speaking about condemning. We are not to condemn somebody, that we are not to sit in the seat of God and to issue condemnation on somebody. What we are called to do, though Jesus says later on, that we are to judge righteously and we are not to judge unrighteously. And, and the issue is that we do not know what's going on inside of another person. We only see the external action. We don't know the heart of the matter. We don't know the thinking. Only God knows that. And there's only one God. I mean, there's only one judge, and that judge is God. And everybody is going to be rightly judged by God. But we are absolutely called to evaluate, to test every single thing against the scriptures to see whether those things are true or not. And so the evaluation part of judgment, we absolutely are called to do as believers. And so here they were now, not willing to step in and to deal with this issue, believing that now being tolerant is the, is the definition of love. We are called to love all men, all people in the name of Jesus, but we are not called to ignore their sin in the name of diversity. Tolerance and love are two completely different things. Sin is a big deal to God. Amen? Sin is a big deal to God. And the minute that we are taking sin and pushing it to the side and making it not a, a big deal, we are not living out uh, our faith. Avoidance in order to keep peace is nowhere taught in the scriptures that we are to confront injustice as believers everybody would agree with that that we're to confront injustice wherever we see wherever there is oppression wherever there is injustice as a believer we stand for righteousness and we are to be the voice of the voiceless we are to be the protector of the defenseless and we are to stand in the gap wherever there is injustice but at the same time that we are called into all of those stances we also are called to call sin sin wherever sin is and to declare what the word of God teaches as the moral standard of sin and to never compromise on what the moral standard of sin is as is revealed to us by the word of God and so we see here that we are to be loving we are to be accepting but we are not to support sin in any way shape or form so Paul is now going to talk about uh, what about sin in the church versus sin that is outside of the church. What are we to do when sin comes inside of the church? And then what's our relationship to sinful practice or lifestyle that is outside of the church? Now, 
Part of the Corinthian confusion came from the last letter that Paul wrote when he was talking to them uh, about how to deal with, <coughs> with immorality. And, and they thought that Paul was <laughs> talking about immorality outside of the church, but Paul was talking about immorality that was inside of the church. And so we've got those two issues now. W what do we do? when we have these lifestyles of people that come into the church that are seeking to know Jesus. We, we want them in the church. We want them to come and to hear the word of God and to hear the truth and to hear the love of God that they might enter into a, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so uh, we wanna create an environment that allows them to come and to hear about Jesus at the uh, same time. But we also never wanna give them permission to stay in that. That lifestyle to help them to think that this is all right that God is accepting of their sin that is in their life the church should be an equal opportunity convictor of sin <laughs> that no matter what sin we're involved in that there is going to be conviction there is going to be definition of sin there's going to be education of sin and there is the willingness to call sin sin the problem comes when the world says that they're it is not sin and that it is acceptable and that's where the battle lines then tend to get drawn. Let's watch as Paul continues here on this issue. He says in verse three, for I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present <laughs> him who has so done this deed. In other words, Paul is saying that he's not gonna defer a decision on this, uh, on this situation until he comes in person. Remember that he is seeking to come and to visit them. He's in Ephesus. Remember in the last chapter, he said that he's gonna send Timothy in the meantime to be able to remind them of the things that he has been instructing them in. And so here he says, on this matter, I'm not waiting until I get there, uh, until I am going to, uh, to, to give you direction uh, on that. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says that when you have come together, uh, they now are to take the action. And so uh, this is a corporate action here. And he says, and deliver such a, a one to Satan. So here we see that the world is always seen as the dominion of Satan. And so we have the church and we have the world. And so he is saying here that we are to take this individual now and to send him back into the, the world, into Satan's dominion. And he is now to be separated from the support of Christian fellowship within the church that he has forfeited the right of participation in church activity. In other words, he's not group worthy. When you have a child, and they are disrupting the group, you give them a timeout. You remove them from the group because they're not group worthy right now. And then the minute that they're group worthy, you can bring them back into the, uh, the group again. Well, Paul is saying that that is basically the exact same spiritual direction to go. That uh, here, unrepentant, 
coming into the church and staying in this lifestyle even after he is being confronted on it. And there is an unwillingness now. Now he is blatantly in his sin and parading it before the church. He says, that's not group worthy now. That person needs to be removed from the church. If he wants to live like the world, and if he wants to broadcast the world's standards, then he needs to go do that in the world. He can't do that here within the church. He can't justify the standards of the world and live them openly within the church. And so at that point, you're not group worthy. You, you need a spiritual time out. And he says that, it would be for the, uh, the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, the destruction of the flesh? Well, Jesus said that when you build your life upon the rock and the sand, he says when you build it upon the sand, when the storm comes and the wind and the waves come, that great will be the collapse of that house. When your house is built upon the, the rock, that when the trials and the testings come, that that, that life will stand, that that house will, will stand. He, he says that send him back into the, the, the world. If he loves his sin more than he loves Christ, if he loves his sin more than obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ in his life, that's going to have consequences in his life. His life is not going to end up being blessed. And there will come a time when, when that will all fall apart in their life. So his life is going to be headed for disaster, but it will wake him up spiritually. The, the hope there is, is that the natural consequences are going to have their effect and he will come to his senses and then he will return back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the, uh, the, the, the story of the prodigal son? And how the prodigal son, he, he departs from the blessings of, uh, of his relationship with his father there in the house. And he, and he goes and, and evolves himself in and, and all types of, uh, of frivolous spending and partying. And, 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 and he lives life. And sin is always fun for a season. It's fun for a season. But then it starts to have its consequences. And so the son runs out of money. He has to get a job. He can't find a job. He finds himself one day all the way to where he is now feeding pigs slop. And he realizes that the slop that he's feeding the pigs is, is better food than he himself is eating. And, and that in his father's house, even the servants eat way better than this. And he comes to his senses that that, that that life that he thought was going to be so fun, so wonderful, had now eroded all the way down till he found himself in, in this place. And he says, I'm going to go back to my father's house. I don't deserve to be a son. I'm not asking to even be restored. I, I just want to be a worker on my dad's property, just a servant. And you remember that when he comes back, that the father runs to him and kisses him and puts the royal robe on him and <laughs> gives him the signet ring and calls for a, a feast because my son who was lost has now returned. See, it was the natural consequences of sin 
that finally brought him to his senses. And, and Paul is saying that this person here who loves their sin now more than they love the Lord, they, they need to go depart. And, and in time, their life is going to get to that place where they're going to have ears to hear and they will return back. So we would rather them have a difficult life that brings them back to the Lord to where now their soul is saved than to make them comfortable in their sin in this life and then have them perish eternally. And so the comfort of the flesh versus the, the spiritual health or concern of that individual. And, and so you've heard of tough love. Tough love is when the love is not gonna enable and further bad behavior, but it is going to take a stand in order to turn the behavior in the right direction. Well, this is an, an example of spiritual tough love uh, of now making the hard decision, not because it's not a loving action, but because it is a loving action. And then what is always the response? Well, you don't love me. You, know, you don't love me. Tough love is always met with, with the cry, you don't love me. And, but the truth is, it, is that that is the, the hardest love, is that tough love. And so here Paul instructs a, a tough love. He, he then goes back and he says in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so now Paul is talking about allowing the world into the church, allowing the standards of the world or the view of the world to enter into the church. That's leaven. The, the attitude uh, now of, uh, of allowing a person to be bringing their lifestyle sin into the church unchallenged. He says, you're, you're allowing leaven. And he, leaven is always a typology of sin. He says, and, and what is the principle, the spiritual principle of leaven? Is, is that a little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump. And, and so... Leaven is that starter, and it's yeast, and, and, and the way that they, they would take flour and water and mix it together, but in order to get it to rise, they, they would take a little piece of, uh, of dough that has yeast already in it, has leaven in it, and they would mix it in. That's called a starter piece, and stick it into the, the flour and water mixture, and that leaven will end up spreading throughout the entire uh, lump, and then the whole uh, lump will rise, and you will now have uh, bread that's been raised and uh, and so the principle here is that when you allow a little bit of leaven into the church that little bit of leaven is is going to spread it's a principle in individual lives in your life and my life if you allow room in your life for sin that sin is going to have an effect in your life. And that sin, when you tolerate it, when you allow it, when you give provision for it, when you protect it in your life, that is going to have an effect and it is going to spread spiritually in your life. You're either committed to the Lord or you're not. When you say, I'm mostly committed, but in this area, I'm not going to listen to the Lord. I'm not going to do what the Lord wants. Well, that becomes a moving boundary in your life. You will just continue to erode on that issue. You're either committed to the Lord or you're not committed to the Lord. You're either in or you're out. And so there is no halfway in position. And Paul here, speaking of that spiritually, says, don't, don't you know 
the principle <coughs> that a little leaven leavens the the entire lump. So verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So Paul's talking about what our attitude towards sin is. When you got saved, you were washed and cleansed and forgiven of all of your sin. You are unleavened. He says now, don't allow that old leaven to come back into your life again. Don't allow those attitudes and those practices and those actions that at one time that you did with, without any remorse or recourse in your life. He says, don't allow those to come back in. You need to be that new lump now that doesn't have the leaven. And he says, for Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. He points now to the seriousness of sin in our life, points to the fact that when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we turned away from the sin that was in our life. And then he reminds them the sin, the cost of sin, the seriousness of sin. Who paid that price for you, for your sin? Jesus Christ paid that price. And how big a price did he pay? Ultimately, it was the sacrifice of himself, of him laying down his life. And so Paul is once again showing them the seriousness of the sin aspect here. He says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so they didn't keep the Passover any longer. That was the Jewish feast. Now they were Christians, and so Christians aren't keeping to the, uh, the Jewish feasts. But he is saying that our spiritual Passover uh, is our salvation. And in our salvation, there was the turning away from sin and now embracing the following Jesus Christ. And so let us keep the feast, the Passover. Christ is our Passover. Not with the old leaven, but with the leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now what does that mean? With the leaven of malice, leaven means sin. So we're not to now keep the the, the new feast to hear our Passover. We're not to live as Christians, he's saying, with the leaven of malice or with the leaven of wickedness. So what he is talking about is our attitude towards the world. In other words, the, the world, they, they are accepting of homosexuality, they are accepting of homosexual marriage, they're accepting of transgenderism. And, and so what is our response now to be towards the world that is engaging in these activities, normalizing these activities, and are openly practicing and recruiting our, uh, our children into these lifestyles? What's, What's to be our response? Well, he says, first of all, it's not to be malice. We're not to hate them. It's easy to get mad at them, to get frustrated at them when we see everything that is going on around us. But you will remember that Jesus taught us the principle that we're to hate the sin, but love the sinner. God loves them. 
When you see a gay parade on, you know, on, on television or pictures of, uh, of them, it's, it's easy to get ired up uh, over that. But to remember that God made every single one of them, that God loves every single one of them, that he knitted them together in their mother's womb and he drew them forth and gave them breath and life. And now they have gone astray from him, but God loves them. They are his lost children. And so just because they're lost, we shouldn't hate them because they're lost and be mad at them because they're lost. They're just lost. That's what the world is. And so you have to expect the world to be acting like the world and, and expect that the world is lost. And, and so he says that there is leaven, okay, there is sin when you've got malice towards them, when, when you've got hatred. God calls us to love everybody and to love them. So you're not allowed to give yourself permission. You're not allowed to allow room in your heart to hate them because you think what they're doing to our culture, our country, our kids, or, or any of those, of those other things. And so the, the, the leaven says, you can't have the leaven of malice towards them. That's one end of the extreme. What's the other end of the extreme? The other end of the extreme is tolerance which is completely, that's the leaven of wickedness. That's allowing wickedness now to go unconfronted and unchallenged. And, and so you can't allow that position of, well, you know, they're allowed to do whatever they want to do and I'm not going to judge them and who am I to judge and, you know, um, uh, all of that. that. Now you've moved into the tolerance equals love camp and that's the far liberal viewpoint. And he says that's, Leaven. And so the sin that is in our world, that is in our culture, we're not to hate them and we are not to accept them. Those are the two ends, those are the two boundary lines of where we're not to be as Christians. Uh, and so he says, but what is to be our attitude towards them? He says, but with the unleavened bread. The, the, the no sin in the bread of sincerity and truth that we are called to be without hypocrisy. Sincerity means without hypocrisy, without being two-faced. He says, and we are to love them in, in truth. And so here we see not a compromise on truth, not peace at any price, not peace at the surrender of truth. You know, the Bible says that, you know, whatever is depending upon you, be on peaceable terms with you know, all people. And, but we are never to surrender truth in order to be on peaceable terms uh, with uh, other people. And so... Verse 9, he now goes back to the last letter that he had wrote to clear up a misunderstanding that they said. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And so this is the letter that we don't have. This is Paul's second letter. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first one that we have. But we see that he is telling them in that letter that they're not to mingle with or to associate in a close way, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. In verse 10, though, he clarifies, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world 
or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go uh, out of the world. Paul had said, you know, don't keep company with the sexually immoral people. And he was saying here that I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral that are in the world. The fact that they're in the world means they're probably sexually uh, immoral. God calls us to be in the world, but to not to be uh, of the world. Remember that Jesus ate with tax collectors and with sinners. He built bridges of relationship with people. And so uh, here Paul had told them, you know, not to keep in company with those that were involved in, in sexual immorality. But Paul says, I wasn't talking about the people outside of the church. He says, if I was talking about people outside of the church, you wouldn't be able to talk to anybody outside of the, uh, of the church. He says, he's going to go on and say, I was talking about the people inside uh, of the church, referencing back now uh, to this uh, situation here. He says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral <laughs> or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or uh, an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. So he's talking about the right hand of fellowship. He's talking about breaking Christian fellowship with somebody who is now living in a lifestyle sin. Someone who has been confronted on the sin, knows that the sin is wrong, and chooses to stay in that sin anyways. And so here he says, you're not to be a support. You're not to be enabling them. You are to treat them now like a non-believer. And so we want to build a bridge of relationship to keep communication open. But there is a difference between Christian fellowship and support uh, versus now building a bridge to where the relationship is one that's focused on ministry. When you have a relationship with someone who's a non-believer, your focus of that relationship should be ministry should be to bring them to a, a, a love of Jesus in Christ. You're, you're not to use them as a counselor. You're not to ask them their opinion on your problems in your life and open your heart and up to them. That's fellowship. Fellowship is when I open my heart to you, you open your heart to me, and we support each other spiritually using the Word of God, praying for one another, and that that, that is fellowship. So here we see that what Paul is saying Saying, you know, is, is that we are not to, uh, to be fellowshipping with somebody who now is conducting themselves as a non-believer. Does it mean that we're to cut off relationship with them? No, but it means that they have shifted the foundation of the relationship. Whereas your relationship used to be as brothers in the Lord, now they're not conducting themselves as a brother in the Lord. So you have to shift to treating them like the world. And so we want to be friends with them. We want to be able to open up bridges of relationship with them, but we're not going to offer them the right hand of fellowship. He goes on in verse 12 to say, for what have I to do with judging those who also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Paul, you know, is kind of correcting where he had told them that they, they thought that he had said that you're, you're not to fellowship or to, you know, have relationships with people that, that are in the world that are living immorally. And 
Paul says, I'm not judging those people. Those are people that are outside of the church. And the sphere of Paul is within the church. He's a church leader. He's an, an apostle. His sphere of influence is within the church. He says, I'm not judging those that are outside of the church, right? God's going to judge everybody. And so he's saying, you know, God will judge the people that are outside of the church. He says, but you you're not even judging what's going on inside of the church. You're not even dealing with this situation right here that is in front of you. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. But therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. But you have to deal with the situation that's in the church. You have to deal now with the world when the world is in the church. And so here when Paul says, put away from yourselves the evil person, he now is quoting the Old Testament. This comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 17 and chapter 24. And, and so it is that in principle of putting somebody outside of the camp. It's that principle of camp cancer, that uh, when a person has cancer, there, there's not to be tolerance of cancer. What you need to do is you need to immediately take and cut it out and remove it from the body. That is the protection of the body from cancer. And that if you try and allow it to stay, that it will spread by nature and then it will take the life completely. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 7, back to where it says that Christ is indeed our Passover. And, and what we see here is in this chapter is that the Corinthians were heading the wrong way. They were heading the wrong way on this uh, issue of this man who is now living with his stepmother in an incestuous uh, relationship. And they thought, right, that they're heading the right way. They, they thought, wow, look at how loving we are. Look at what a good church we are. You know, we're flying the rainbow flag. We're, uh, we're inclusive. We're tolerant. We are welcoming. We are accepting. That's a, that is a wonderful thing. They were heading the exact wrong way, but thinking that they're heading the right way. Paul knew a lot about that. Paul knew what it was like to be heading the wrong way and to be thinking that you're actually heading the right way. Remember that he was the chief persecutor of the, of the early church. And he thought that he was doing God's will by going in and arresting Christians and breaking up families and, and disrupting. And he was doing it zealously and completely because he thought that he was heading in the right direction. And then and suddenly... He is confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ turns him around completely. The Corinthian church thinks that they're loving by being intolerant. And they think they're heading in the right direction. But, uh, but the Lord needs to, to turn them around and to, uh, and to head them back in the right direction. And you know, today you could be here and, and you could be heading in the wrong direction and you could not even know that you're heading in the wrong direction. You could think that the end of your life when you go to heaven that you get to go to heaven because you're a good person. 
because you don't judge others, because you are accepting, broad-minded, you are loving, you are kind, you give to charities, you do good works, you, you try your best to love people. And certainly if you love people, then when you die, then you're going to get to spend eternity with, with God who is love. But I want you to know that just like Paul, when he thought he was heading in the right direction, was heading in the wrong direction, and just like the Corinthian church that thought that they were heading in the right direction when they were heading in the wrong direction. If, <clears throat> if that's the direction that you're heading in today, you are heading in the wrong direction thinking that you're headed in the right direction. How does a person enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not subject to opinion. Opinions, everybody can have an opinion and an opinion are your own and, and there's neither right or wrong on your opinion. It's your opinion. But how a person enters into heaven isn't subject to opinion. That's subject to truth. And God is the one who has told us exactly what the truth is when it comes to what happens after you breathe your last breath. You see, after you breathe your last breath, then you are going to stand in the presence now of heaven. And you are either going to be welcomed into heaven or you are going to be removed from the presence of, uh, of heaven. And it's not going to be based upon how much you loved but it's based upon how much God loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus Christ is the Passover. He is our Passover. He, he is the one that now has paid the penalty for your sin and my sin when he went to the cross. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. No one gets to the Father except through me. That he is the door into the entrance of heaven. You see, in heaven you can't bring your soul stained with sin into heaven. That's, that's the principle. God will not fellowship with sin. And so a stained soul cannot come into the presence of God. That puts every single one of us in the same problem. Because every single one of us has sinned. The Bible says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so each and every one of us, we've used our free will that God gave us and, and we've sinned. And now we cannot bring a stained soul into the presence of God. So what did God do? God sent his son to come down and wash our soul so that your soul now washed of your sin. So that when you die and you stand before God, you stand before God with a washed soul, clean, white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are forgiven. And now your soul that's been washed is acceptable to come into the presence of God. And you will spend eternity now welcomed into his presence. And if your soul has its sin on it, you cannot come into heaven. Even if there's just a little bit, Lord, look how good I did. I, I kept my soul mostly clean. You could have the mostest clean soul ever. 
But that speck is going to keep you out of heaven. And so Christ invited everybody to come and let me wash your soul that you may spend eternity with me in heaven. And, and, that, and that's what being a Christian is all about. And today, you have either been washed or you're not. You're either, if you took your last breath right now, you would be welcomed into the presence or you would be excluded. And I couldn't possibly end this service today without giving every single person an opportunity to come up to the front and let Jesus Christ wash your, your soul. It's not something that you need to keep on doing. It's a, a one-time surrender of yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that He can wash your soul. And, and so... If you understand that today in a way that you have never understood that before and you want to give your life to Christ, you want to have your soul washed and you want to be a part of the kingdom of God for all eternity, we're going to worship through a song and I'm going to invite you to stand up and come to the front and I will lead whoever is here in a simple prayer of enthroning Jesus Christ in your life and removing the sin that was on your soul. So if that's you this morning, you stand up and come forwards now while we worship.